Okay, so now it's uh, my pleasure to introduce uh, my colleague from uh, EPFL, Professor Marlene Anderson, uh, so, which knows quite a lot about habitats, of course. So maybe the floor is yours. Thank you very much, and um, it's a great pleasure and an honor to be speaking in a distinguished audience knowledgeable about uh, outer space, which I'm not at all, so I'll try to uh, stay with two feet on Earth and uh, speak a little bit uh, from my two roles uh, to try to tell you a little bit of what is going on at EPFL regarding sustainable habitats, and especially at ENAC, the school that I'm uh, currently leading and uh, at the same time uh, what we are doing in uh, my lab in particular. So uh, ENAC, as some of you may know, is consisting of three uh, disciplines, architecture, civil engineering, and environmental engineering. And we also have, uh, are connected with two antennas. One of particular importance today is the Fribourg antenna, uh, which deals with the built environment and uh, its future. And so, uh, more globally, uh, ENAC looks at a whole variety of, per of perspectives which may also be relevant for the discussions today, uh, from water use, uh, transportation and mobility, uh, uh, environmental detection technology, so different aspects that altogether uh, make ENAC and could have a relevance to the discussions today. But maybe if uh, we look more specifically at where we look in, where we uh, work in terms of habitats, uh, we really have a connection of architecture and civil engineering with a few labs. Each of these bubbles represents uh, one lab at ENAC, the whole thing is ENAC as a whole, and uh, really focusing on different aspects or uh, uh, flavors, so to speak, of um, habitats in general. And um, we have been partnering with uh, the University of Fribourg and the uh, University of Applied Sciences uh, of Fribourg, École d'Ingénieurs et d'Architectes de Fribourg, to create the Smart Living Lab, a collaborative platform that is meant to become a center of excellence regarding the future of uh, our buildings. And so we look at different aspects, amongst which at how to build an actual building that will host this program or this center, and that will both be emblematic of the future of the built environment, as well as uh, a, a lab, an actual living lab for the people who will uh, inhabit it and, and work in it, about uh, 80 to 100 people. And so we have a range of themes that are being explored at this stage specifically for this building and will uh, turn into experiments with uh, physical uh, measurements and monitoring with uh, users uh, in which we are already in close collaboration with the other two uh, institutions. And so if we look at what the, a smart living lab should be, in uh, 2050, this is the vision that we had for this uh, smart living lab. What can we say about what should be our buildings in uh, 30 years? Not so much, probably. Uh, technology is likely to be obsolete. The energy question might have a whole different uh, turn by then. So what can we say that, that may not be obsolete by then? Well, what we know is that we might still have humans, or hopefully so. Um, and these humans have needs. And uh, the reason we build buildings is actually to fulfill human needs. 
uh, the bottom of the pyramid that uh, Soren uh, showed just before, physiological need, we need shelter and we need comfort. We need uh, well-being and uh, warmth, as was uh, in the pyramid. So if we focus on humans, we might not be so wrong. And so one of the aspects is to look at the user environment uh, specifically. And so this is where I would like to focus uh, the, um, the, the, the next slides is to go from the building scale to really the human scale because I think this is as relevant for uh, outside of Earth uh, habitat as, as it is here. What are the needs that we really need to fulfill? And so uh, our lab is playing a, a linking role between uh, some uh, domains like psychophysics or photobiology in trying to bring these findings into uh, lighting environments or built environments uh, as a whole to try to see how we can go further from what we know today. So what we know today is how to deal with uh, what I call mainstream performance, uh, which as, as regards to lighting, this is going to be my focus uh, of this talk, looks at do we have enough light to work for test performance? Are we comfortable or are we not uncomfortable? Uh, do we not experience glare? Are we dealing with solar gains properly? Do we not have overheating in the summer or in uh, some hot winter days? Or, and do we manage the electric lighting properly with uh, daylighting? So these are quite mainstream and have been studied for a long time. What has gotten a little less attention is the health effects of light or how we behave in a workspace regarding where we look and uh, how we perceive them. And I think these are also relevant and uh, should get maybe more attention. What is a little difficult and also very interesting about daylighting is the fact that it changes all the time. So it is a highly dynamic, not only because the apparent sun, of the apparent sun course, but also because of the weather, the unpredictable weather. And therefore, this, these dynamics should be embraced as uh, interesting uh, assets of a daylit environment that could fulfill our human needs uh, as well or even better as uh, one where we don't have a connection to the outside. So um, one aspect that we could, for example, look at is whether visual comfort has an interaction with thermal comfort. Uh, or in other words, uh, would uh, lighting that is colored influence our perception of comfort in that room? If it's blue, do we feel slightly cooler even though the actual operative temperature is the same? Uh, when we experience glare, do we feel hotter? Or when we feel hot, are we more sensitive to glare? These are interactions that uh, surprisingly have not been studied so much and that we have uh, set ourselves to uh, study a little more. And so uh, as an illustration, if you're in this uh, beautiful rendering that is not by us, this is uh, a panorama by the, the studio Olafur Eliasson, you go from red to green to yellow and you may even uh, in your body feel a little bit of a difference depending on what color you're looking at. So there may be, possibly, a perceptive effect of the environment or the color of the environment you are in. And this would be an interesting uh, um, question to ask. On the other hand, we also, for comfort um, questions, assume that we keep looking at our screen when we work. Okay, it might be right, it might be wrong. I don't think it's right because when we measure it, this is where we actually look when we work on our screen. We work, look everywhere, but not uh, as much, of course, in every direction. So what we, were, what we got interested in was to try to link the lighting environment with where we look, depending on the task that we perform. 
And so uh, if you look at, so we, we used eye tracking devices to do that. And then here, depending on the task, when we respond uh, to questions, when we type, we look at this, the keyboard and the screen. But when we talk on the phone, we look pretty much everywhere. This is depending on the lighting conditions, and this is the task and the distribution of view directions as a function of these. So it brought a new dimension to visual comfort that should also be dynamic as a function of the lighting environment, uh, which makes it even more complex, but also, as I said, more interesting. And so when we try to represent this in a way that can be accessible to, for example, designers which ultimately make these decisions, uh, we, we uh, made this attempt uh, at looking at a day in Reykjavik, the uh, summer solstice in Reykjavik for a building that was actually meant for Miami, <laughs> the Neugebauer House, and uh, the little bubbles that you see each correspond to one particular glare source, and they tell you how much your view direction may shift to the left or the right as a function of the light that you receive and that will make you look towards brightness when it's not uncomfortable and away from brightness when it becomes uncomfortable. Of course, for a winter day in Reykjavik that lasts four hours, um, you have much less time to look at uh, discomfort and you uh, probably go to sleep a little earlier. Now, Another aspect that I think is of particular importance in outer space habitats is the non-visual aspects of lighting. The fact that our biological clock is responding to light. We have a photoreceptor, as we discovered uh, about 15 years ago, called melanopsin in the, the back of our eye, that is there to tell us what the day, uh, the light-dark cycle is, or helps us adjust to it. And uh, we have an average uh, biological day that's slightly longer than 24 hours. But when we see uh, light in the morning, it has this tendency to reduce our, the length of our biological day a little bit to stick to the 24 hours of the astronomical day. When we see light in the evening, it has a tendency to lengthen it. So this is one aspect that is called uh, phase shifting. But light has other effects, that, other effects that are also direct, for example, on alertness. And so there are a range of parameters about light that actually influence uh, health, ultimately health uh, questions that, that can have really dramatic or very important effects on our immune system, on uh, cancer risks, on our uh, sleep quality, our mood, our alertness. And so these are very important and uh, pertinent aspects to look at, especially when we are in a closed or a daylight-free environment where we really have to look at this rhythm of day and night very carefully to make sure that we don't, uh, that we still stimulate this non-visual system enough. What is difficult about it is that the factors are very complex compared to visual light. Visual light is instantaneous. We know the, 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 our sensitivity uh, curve uh, regarding um, phot uh, photopic light. So this is all quite well understood. However, for non-visual light, the problem is that it, well, the, the wavelength range is different, typically shifted towards the blue, but even that has a dynamic. At the, very, at the onset of light, it is actually still uh, in the, between uh, blue and green, and then it shifts towards the blue. There is an intensity threshold, but it's a sigmoid curve, so it has no effect until it reaches a certain threshold, and then it jumps to then, if you have much more light or just a little more light, doesn't make a difference anymore, so it's very dynamic. It also depends on the duration of the lighting, the pattern, so whether it's uh, intermittent lighting or continuous, and it depends on its timing, whether it's the morning or the afternoon, and as well as the history. So your adaptation 
to having had exposure to light in previous hours or in previous days. So all that makes it very challenging to try to fit into a workflow that looks at lighting design. Lighting design has existing tools that are well known, work with Lux and all that. And uh, now to bring all these new dynamic factors in is a really interesting challenge. And so <clears throat> we have to look indeed at threshold, at spectral sensitivity that moves over time, at the integration over time of light and at the phase shifting effects and adaptation to uh, the lighting environment you are at a certain uh, moment. So how we try to uh, kind of look at that is by starting with the actual input we usually get from simulation tools or that lighting designers work with and to then split the problem into direct effects versus phase shifting effects which are quite well understood and there is a very strong existing model called the Cronauer model that is already trying to predict the response of uh, our body to um, uh, different sleep-wake cycles. So the idea was to in incorporate the direct effects into that model to be able to talk about the health potential of a space, whether in outer space or on Earth. And so again, trying to make this accessible uh, to people making decisions, this is very early on in the development of our computational model, but the representation is interesting to try to show how phase-shifting represented here in yellow. So this shows how much you will have a tendency to shorten or lengthen your biological day as a function of light and the dose, the amount of light that you can actually accumulate over the day to respond to the, uh, to the stimulation that you need to uh, be healthy. This is a little bit of a summary, but uh, to have stimulated your um, non-visual system enough for this. And so, of course, for a uh, short winter Reykjavik day, you don't achieve the dose that you need and you are in uh, uh, underlit conditions and therefore you uh, ex can experience different uh, problems, including, um, uh, although not uh, uh, directly represented here, seasonal affective disorder and so on. And so, um, if we go yet to another uh, aspect of uh, the interest of daylighting and its dynamic is why we like to be in a daylit space and then looking at the level of quote-unquote excitement in a space that might be linked to contrast, how much contrast there is, how much change there is from bright to dark. If you're in a, a dim or very diffuse room, this can be good for a while, it might not be good for weeks and weeks in a row where you're always in a very low contrast, uh, very controlled room. You want a little bit of change because you're used or have evolved, or we have all evolved, in, a, in, a, in an environment that changes a lot. And so if we uh, look at uh, this um, contrast as a, as a measure of excitement, so we ran a, a pilot study with uh, questionnaires and um, over 100 respondents looking at different images to try to see if contrast indeed was correlated with what they perceived as an exciting space, and there was a correlation indeed. Uh, and therefore, you could consider that the Institut du Monde Arabe uh, in Paris, which has this diaphragm and, and a lot of uh, uh, change from dark to bright, uh, could over time, so if you have days over the year here and hours of the day over here, the level of excitement would be great over the entire year. Whereas uh, the, the Serpentine Pavilion, again too, 
This is the Neugebauer house that I talked about before in Miami, where you have more excitement in the afternoon, of course, because it's a west-facing uh, facade, so you have sunlight in the afternoon. But then if you go to the Unitarian church or a museum, then you want to have a very stable environment, and therefore the level of excitement might not be so good, but you're excited by the artwork. So uh, if we look at that, now we can represent not, these are not renderings, these are a uh, uh, location of where you change a lot from bright to dark. So these are the perimeter, so to speak, of the contrast areas. And when you have a lot of pixels, so to speak, um, that uh, pertain to that category, you would have a high level of spatial contrast related to a visual interest of the space. Whereas, again, uh, at the solstice uh, in the winter in Reykjavik, you suddenly have plenty of light, but for a very short amount of time. And uh, so therefore you peak much higher, but for a much uh, shorter period. And uh, still along those lines, you can also look at preferences for patterns, patterns on facades, patterns of daylighting. And there was an interesting, very preliminary pilot study looking at how you perceived the ambience of a particularly boring room, just a shoebox, basically, that we have at DPFL for uh, running experiments, to see if you could, first of all, to see if there was a good correlation between a virtual space environment and a real space. And so we ran this with this Oculus where you can uh, be, oh, be. Uh, think you are a little bit uh, in such a space. This is based on renderings that are projected on a cube. And, um, and then what we found out was that for this very boring space, there was a very clear preference for, uh, or, or the, the factors about satisfied with percentage of view, excitement, complexity, interest, and pleasantness were much, were significantly sorry, significantly higher for the irregular pattern, despite the fact that the amount of open uh, view was exactly the same. It was the same ratio of open to opaque surface, but it was placed in a, in a, the composition was slightly different. And so this was interesting to note that also not only the amount of view counts, but also how it is distributed and how then the light that comes inside the space will be affected by it. This is a very early study, so we have no conclusions yet, but it's just, it shows that it's an interesting question to, um, to answer. And so if we look back at the mainstream uh, metrics, uh, so we know how to build, you know, illuminance sensor planes and uh, look at uh, the, the balance point calculations and uh, solar gains and so on. And then if we try to add these metrics that have very different formats, we have to find a way to represent them in a uniform framework. And so we can, uh, rep this is over time, but we could do the same over space. We have a surface and then we would plot the numbers. Um, so we could do that in absolute performance where we just show how much of each we have. Uh, or we could also uh, complement this by goal-based performance where we uh, give it a different color depending on how close it is to achieving the goals that we have set, which may change. Maybe we want a museum to be very <coughs> stable in regarding contrast and we want the Serpentine Pavilion to be very contrasted. So we will have, if yellow is meeting the goal, we will have a lot of yellow in both cases with a very different lighting pattern. So the absolute values would be very different, but the uh, success of the project would be um, similar. And so uh, this is in a, a nutshell, uh, some of the uh, research we are doing towards comfort um, aspects. And I would just like to end with uh, a glimpse of a project we are currently uh, working on, but this is back to my dean's role. 
uh, where we are um, involved with uh, uh, as four institutions, again, the three from the Smart Living Lab and the Head Genève Art and Design School for communication in the competition called the Solo Decathlon. There again, the idea is to design and build in a very short amount of time, one year and a half, a new habitat, a new housing proposal, sustainable housing proposal based on solar energy. But it's not just about uh, creating a solar box. It is also about answering interesting questions about how we should live tomorrow, uh, including uh, the proposition that we want to make is actually not a house. It's more of a social activator, a place where we can raise awareness about sustainability that also have, has lodging and could be uh, adjusted to either activate socially in a uh, collective social housing environment or in a villa environment or even in an industrial environment. So the idea is to focus on energy with this uh, 2000 watt society as a target and to look at questions of water resources, urbanism, mobility, energy, comfort, etc. as uh, a piece of architecture that would uh, embrace all of these and integrate them uh, in, a, in a way that can deliver an interesting message. So with that, I would like to uh, close and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you very much, Marilyn. We have, we'll take just one question, if any. Okay, you are first. Uh, thanks a lot for your talk. Um, my question is first, uh, how big are the individual differences for these effects? And did you see also some cultural differences, like people who live near the equator, who have a very different light pattern the whole of year than people in Norway, for example? Yes, so uh, it's very interesting that you uh, ask that because we haven't run a cultural study yet, but we are about to do one, as a matter of fact, between Norway, Switzerland and Greece. So to look both at the cultural effects and at the latitude adaptation effect. So this could be a very interesting question to answer and we will run the uh, pattern studies uh, on the, the, the cultural uh, questions. Regarding individual preferences, there is a lot of uh, variability. So the statistics are really important to get. So you need uh, uh, many uh, subjects to be able to extract uh, a meaningful um, uh, uh, number out of these. Uh, so depending on the question that you ask, you range from needing 15 uh, subjects to 100. It depends what question you ask and how much there can be confounding effects in your, in your study. But so this, of course, has to be accounted as well. Yes. Thank you for the question. Okay. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we have to stop here.